Okay, today I'm at Solmesbury Racecourse with uh, kind permission with Ken Peterson. Ken, thanks very much for uh, agreeing to talk to us here. It's taken us a while, isn't it? <laughs> it's been a long time, so I remember, I think you asked me a couple of years ago, but yeah, we, we finally got it, got it nailed down for today. Okay, so uh, you're known for your paddock watching, so we'll start with a couple of people like to learn from these interviews. So uh, what's the most positive thing you can see in a horse when it's walking around a paddock? I think the, most, the two most important things is one is that they're actually their mind and their demeanour. That's very important because for all horses, it's a different surrounding. So you see how they actually come into the parade ring and how they're walking around to start with. Then you start looking at how fit a horse is regarding its fitness. So you look at its hindquarters. The, the more defined the lines are, the fitter a horse is. You look at his ribs. Are they tight or is it actually loose? So you just look at those. Those are the two main important things. Definitely a horse's demeanour and how fit a horse is. Okay, so on the other side, what's the most negative? Negative? Well, it, it's quite a few things. I mean, neg- the thing that I find is, like, you've got a, a, quite a pleasant day today. You wouldn't want a horse walking into the paddock, sweating up on its toes, because it's just losing nervous energy. And obviously, it's going to run a mile and a half or over jumps two miles. You're just wasting energy. So the most important thing is the horse to be nice and relaxed when he walks into the paddock, and you don't want it sweating up or just using up um, energy. Okay, so... How long have you been sort of scrutinising horses in the paddock? Oh, well, professionally, over 20 years, but I've been going range for over 30 years. So, yeah, it's been a, it's been a long, a long, a long trial. But, yeah, I, I enjoy it. And it's, it's something you, you're always learning in this game because there's always different sires, different horses, different trainers, different methods. So, yeah, you're always, I think you're always learning and see how things adapt. OK, so have um, horses sort of differed in the time that you started watching looking at it and and now yeah definitely i mean if you take national hunt racing for instance you had all those 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 um renowned sires like your mandalises and all those they were big slow horses that took time before they actually developed and you could see that a horse walked in it was clueless it didn't it just it was just a frame there was no no physical development sorry the physical development was there but it just wasn't all together so you could see that on on your big Talking talk of your big national hunt horses, your flat types, you had a different type of flat horse. They were not so, I would say, more athletic now um, now than they were, say, in the 80s or 90s. They were nice horses, but they just took a bit more time to come to hand. Nowadays, your flat horses, they want them tomorrow. They want, that's why they want them yesterday. They want them ready, ready developed, ready to go. OK, so what are the hardest types of race to form an opinion on just purely from watching them in the paddock? I think the, I think the hardest ones is, are probably your older handicaps. You kind of know, you kind of the form's in the book. There's nothing you can really gain by looking at them other than negatives. So if you've seen the horse, which you've seen seven or eight times, you've seen it from a three-year-old, four-year-old, five-year-old, you kind of know it, its um, makeup. you kind of know how it looks. And then you don't really learn nothing from them when they turn up in the tra- track, unless, for instance... He, he walks in and he's running around the paddock. He's dragging his lad or lass around. Just those things he does out of character. That's what you. That's, those are the horses you can. You don't really learn much from. Okay, so if you've got, are you sort of blessed with a good memory, or do you need to write down and make notes and sort of study those notes before you come racing on, on a day? I'm not that clever, Simon. You've got to write them down. There's too much racing. You have. I mean, what I my 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 usual day, I, I'll go racing like here at Salisbury today. I'll, um, I'll write my notes down on, on my um, race card, I'll go home, and then I'll just spend a, a half an hour and just put them all on my computer. So I have them as a backup reference to when um, 
to um, next time they run, I'll have a quick look how how I saw them the time before. So I've got a quick memory that yeah, okay, it looked fit, it didn't look fit, it needed the run, all those sort of things. The next time it appears and I'm there, I can remember what I've had written down before because you can't remember it now, Simon. There's too much racing going on. Okay, so you sort of sometimes you see a horse after two or three months and think, bloody hell, that's filled out. Yeah, you know, that that's going to be obviously a definite uh, positive. Yeah. Definitely. So two-year-olds, I mean, they're official birthdays, as far as I know, the, uh, January the 1st. So do you have access to their actual date of birth? And is it important then gauging how ready they are? Very much so. Because if you, if you look at, um, if any, for any two-year-old races, if you look on, on its details of the horse, you'll see when it's actually born. And then, for instance, you look at this year's Bockersby when I think it was Persian Force. He was, if I remember right, I think he was, he was a January foal. He was racing against horses that were born in, March and April. He's been on the ground three months before them. He'd grown, he'd developed. They've been on the ground for sometimes not even two-year-olds, some of those, that early. So you can see a big difference in how they develop. So birthdays are important with two-year-olds because if you've got something that's born in January and it raises in March, it's had three, three, near enough three months to develop. Something that's born in March, say March the 1st, and it's racing at the end of the month, it's not even one. It's not even a month on the on the ground, so it makes a big difference. And is how they how they're acting in the in the paddock also very important for knowing how mature it might be out on the track? Yeah, I think so. I mean, like I said, like I said at the beginning of this conversation, a, a good mind. You want a horse that you want a horse that's taking everything in, but not getting upset by it. And you can see that with all sort of horses. Sometimes you see a horse that looks the part, but his mind is just elsewhere, like a school kid looking around, looking what's going on, not concentrating on what he's meant to be doing. So those things are definitely important when you're looking at a horse to see how he's taking his, how he's, sorry, how he's taking his environment, how he looks, and how he's just um, taking what's going on. Because a, if he's got a good, relaxed mind, it will hopefully show that on the racetrack as well. OK, now that's um, sort of you're looking at that in the, in the parade ring. A lot of race courses I go to, I see lots of shrewdies stood around the pre-parade ring. They've normally got beards and loads of form books and stuff like that. I mean, is there an added advantage to being at the pre-parade ring? Yeah, I think so, because I think, I think it's important. And I think race courses should know that it is important, to, because people have come to see the horse. And they, should have a, they only get, a, if you think, people only see the horse for roughly some tracks, what, five minutes? And that's not good enough. You, you, you get them in the pre-parade ring, you watch them go around, you can see them because if you think about it, a flat horse, you see him for two years, three years max. You don't see him for that length of time. With a jumper, you've got a lot more time to see him over from, from four-year-old up to about a nine or ten-year-old. So there's much more time. So with a youngster, young horse, it's important to see him in the pre-parade ring, see how they're taken to the environment and just see how, how, basically how they look, how, how they're built, how they're walking around. Just take all those things in. So... And then you, so you've taken the information that you can glean from the pre-parade ring and then the parade ring. How important then to you is watching them go down? Oh, it's definitely important. I mean, lucky the ground isn't too bad here today. We've got decent ground here. So you want, you watch a horse go down. You like a horse to have a a nice flow in action on good ground. Quite, quite low to the ground, but moves, um, like an athlete, moves really well. You don't want a horse lifting his knees up because that shows it wants heavy ground. And then you can have some horses that take off with their jockeys, no matter who they are. If a horse decides to bolt to the start, it will bolt, no matter who's on the top. So all those things, especially in the young horses, um, first time in race course, is important. You watch how they, they take to all those sort of things, go down to the start nice and steadily. Say, again, he's conserving energy. He's not doing anything silly. And you, and you take that in. And that's, 
that sometimes the market can just change on the way a horse goes to start. Yeah, so if just from a from a betting point of view, I mean, everybody thinks they need to get on early to get the value, but even at the start, if a horse starts playing up, that is the, the, the price that you might have lost worth waiting for to make sure everything's right before they go in. Yeah, sometimes, yeah, definitely. I mean, you, sometimes, especially with young horses, you want to see everything everything goes smoothly. He's done the parade break, he's gone down to the start, he's gone to the stalls, he hasn't done anything silly, he's, he's been nice and relaxed, where you, you see it sometimes, a horse comes out on the track, it charges down to the start, so he's wasted all that energy down at the start, gets there, still buzzing around, running around, will not settle. So that's going to happen when the race starts, gets into the stalls, hits the lids, and then he just, just pulls too hard. So all that is education and things you can actually learn by looking at them. Okay, so you mentioned um, the worst things and the best things. Can you give us some, give us some more little subtle things that you may be looking for in the paddock? I think, I think, I think you, you look at how, you, again, hopefully you've done a little bit, a bit of work to know what sort of horse you're dealing with, like it's, it's dad and it's mum. So you kind of know, I mean, what I generally do before, before the day's racing, I've gone through, like your, say your two-year-old race, so you know what the dam's done, what's your group winner. So are you looking at a, a, a horse that could be better at three or is it just a set two-year-old who's going to be is going to be a two-year-old? So you look at those sort of things before you actually get to the paddock and then you kind of frame in your mind, if you're looking at a sprinter, you're looking at a small, close couple type, but well muscled up, looking for your mile, mile plus horses, they're, they're more longer types. So you're looking for those sort of variations in physiques when you, when you look at the horses in the paddock and those things can, can point you to a winner and to a loser. Now, I'm assuming that with most things in horse racing, there's always the exception to the rule. So, I mean, how often do you, you know, do you get totally put away? You think that has got no possible chance and it bolts up. Oh, definitely. I mean, I was only last week I saw a two-year-old that played up in, played up in the paddock and I thought, oh, didn't look great. Sweated up, went to post like a bat out of hell. And I thought, oh, what do I do? Do I lay this thing? And I thought, no, I sit tight. It came back and bolted up, and you, st- you stand there and you think, "Well, here it goes." That's that's that happens. I mean, that's the thing about horse racing. Nothing is nothing is as as easy as it seems. So you're all, as I said, you're always learning. You're always picking things out, and you're always seeing things where you you can't understand how that's happened. Mark Johnson's a great example. His two-year-olds, I've seen them play up. I've seen them bolt to post. I've seen them do all sorts of things and still win. So they can do horses can do silly things and win some horses can do silly things and just don't perform so it's never an easy and it's always it's always a learning curve i'd say all right ken in part one you give us uh, some good advice there about what to look for um for the, those of us uninitiated in paddock watching so how did you get your eye trained it was again i've been quite lucky i mean all, all what happens i used to go racing with um my mate joe mikel Robbie and myself, we used to go racing in the 80s, didn't have a clue, went around the tracks, having bets, having a great fun, and just didn't know what we were doing. And then four became three, became two, and I was left on my own. And I remember I was, I was at Cheltenham, and um, I met this, I was speaking to this, this person who happened to be Victor Chandler's pallet judge. And he introduced me to Gerald Delamere, and if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't be sitting here now. And I, and I was introduced to him, and then he taught me, how to look at how to assess horses in, in the paddock, um, their physique, um, how they look, an unfit horse, a fit horse, just just years and years of standing by him and learning. 
and that's that's how I became that's where I am now because it's down to him and he taught me all those sort of things and then if you remember and we used to have on Saturdays Jim McGrath from Time Form used to be on Breakfast TV and he used to come on and he used to give his tips and explain a few things and I and it, it triggered things in me because I could kind of understand what he was he was talking about so after learning from Jerry and all that I I was standing by him and I got offered um I think I got offered I actually got offered my first sort of job was was, was for a bookmaker was for Victor Chandler I remember working for him and he was saying it was mainly the big meetings would go to and I would tell him what I didn't like and what I did like because at that time there was no there's no exchanges so no bookmaker would, would price up till about 10 50 minutes before a race they would all have all the bookmakers Victor Chandler Kinghorn Hills Labrooks Dudley Roberts always had someone on track to tell them a how horses looked before they priced up so it was like a, a gold mine and it was a good start because like I said there was no exchanges Everybody had to wait until they received information from people like myself before they actually priced up. So it was brilliant. So Victor Chandler was stood on his pitch. Yeah. And you were telling him that one couldn't possibly win. Yeah. Well, that must have been quite nerve-wracking. It, it was. I think the, I remember the one that really did really got me was a year at Cheltenham when uh, I think it was um, Royal Eclair. And I don't know if it was the Cat Car or the Marmare fleet. And I remember when I said, Victor, this looks brilliant. It looks outstanding. And he turned to, I think it was Ashley at the time, and said, I wanted 100 grand on this. And I literally wept myself. I thought, Jesus. And then, obviously, because there's no exchange, you can see the price shortening on, on everyone's board where this money's gone into the ring. And it won. And it was. And then I realised how this was an important... Not how important it was, but how big it can be. Because people took your advice and trusted what you said and were prepared to put money and some serious money behind it. So that was a real, a real um, eye-opener for me. And then that went on for two years, I think it was. That, that that fizzled out because Victor Charlie moved um, to, think, to Gibraltar or whatever. So that, that petered out. And then I remember I was, remember I was at Newmarket before the Guineas and Neville Porter tapped my arm and introduced himself. And he said, oh, I understand you're, you're a pretty good pallet judge. And I said, I'm all right. And he said, would you like to work for me? And I said, OK. So, so he said, all right, tomorrow. I thought, all right. So next day, go to Newmarket. I think we got the first race, right? second race we did okay third so come to the guineas I'm feeling really I'm, I think I'm I think I'm really I really met crack this I thought I went up to Neville I said Nev don't like this um I don't like this George Washington he's he's got really agitated right okay we laid it we laid it we backed off the girls it bolts up right I've got my chin on the floor thinking oh what have I done first day and I've cost this man a fortune and to be fair to Nev I walked up the next race and he said don't worry about it he said, don't even worry about it. What do you like in this race? And from that day, I just, I really respected him because I really thought, you, you employ someone for the first day and they've lost you a fortune, you're going to think, well, I've, I've, this guy must be no good. But he, he entrusted it with me and we, we worked for two, I think three years and it was, it was a real great fun. I mean, up and down the country, he would phone me and one little thing, story I remember telling is, um, I went to Musselburgh and he owed me about, he owed me about three or four grand and I thought, oh my God, he ain't going to pay me. So I get there and he said, I'll owe you some money. So I do the, do the work for Mossover. He goes, I've got some money for you. And he pulled out a hundred pound notes, Scottish. And he goes, I go, no, if I don't want this, he goes, that, take it. And I, I didn't know what to do because what do you do with a hundred pound Scottish notes? So I had to go to the bank and put them in. So it was quite, it was quite funny putting, trying to put in a hundred pound Scottish notes because I've never seen it before in my life and never again. So it was just a great lark working for him and, Again, things just put it out, put, um, put it out with him.
I suppose I was going to ask you how you could actually be calm enough to make a, a reasoned opinion when you know that these sorts of money are going to, you know, rest on what you've said. I mean, was was Victor as um, was Victor as reasonable when one got one 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 as well? I, he, he he wasn't. Yeah, he was all right, but. I, I, I would say working for Nev was 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 much better. I mean, he, the thing with Neville, win, lose or draw, he never changed. I mean, a great result for us. I remember was when we went to Cheltenham, and it was three days that that year, and Denman ran in the Sun Alliance hurdle, and I thought this horse looks terrible. His coat was terrible. He, he, he hadn't come in his coat. He was patchy, and I thought I think we can get this beat. So I went up to Nev and I said to Nev, I think we can get this beat, and he said, "You sure?" I said, "I think so, Nev." I said, the only horse I like against it is a horse called Nicanor. He said, all right. And Nev being Nev, he said, leave it with me. I think we laid Demon and we backed Nicanor, right? And I'm sitting in the stands and I'm just watching this race develop and I'm just hoping I've got this right. Nicanor wins, then we'll, then we'll, then we'll gets beaten. So after that result, he said to me, no matter what, Ken, we cannot lose for the week, right? And I remember it was a Thursday. I went to get paid and he gave me so much money, I didn't have enough pockets to put them in. He said, that was a great, great, great call. I don't know how much he won, but all I knew, I, all, I had a coat, two coats on, and I could not put the money in it, the amount of money he gave me for that day. It was just, an, um, it was just one of those great results where you think, that was, that was a really good day's work. And, and he was just that sort of person. If, you, if he won, you won. If you lost, you just got your wages, but he, didn't, he did never complain, never moaned. And even today, we're still great friends when we see each other. Brilliant stuff. Now, you're talking about Deadman and stuff there. So, one of the questions I sort of thought of yesterday was: Is it important to have seen a horse at peak fitness to be able to accurately judge how it is that day? So, would you have need to see Deadman before it won the Go Cup to to know that it wasn't quite? Yeah, but that's that's the thing about that's the thing about going to smaller tracks and going because it's not all about your Cheltenham's and your entries because you've got to start somewhere. So you've got to go to your places like your Bangers, like like your Newton Abbots, like your Exeters. You see these horses when they're starting out as babies, as bumper horses in, in your jumpers, and you watch them develop. And like I think that year I'd, I'd seen Demon run at I think it was Wing Canton when he had won. I'd seen him develop and seen how he was, and that day. Just that day, he just didn't look his didn't look himself for one reason or another. I don't know, but that day he didn't look himself, and lucky enough we profited from it. So there are the thing is, it's seeing the horse for a length of time, like in jumpers, where you've got data of like notes of how they looked previously, how they performed. So you've got all that. Where in flat horses, you, like I said, you've only got a short window, so you've got to be a bit more precise, a bit. You've got to try and not guess, but try and be more accurate with your your select with your um your predictions because you've only got three years to work with and that's that's harder because a two year old you see it as a two year old hopefully develops as a three year old you might not see it again or you see it as a four year old so you're shorter window with with flat horses where in national hunt you've got a longer time to get more data on them okay so is a lot of it sixth sense would you say oh I wouldn't say no I I said I said to someone if I take you and I just give you the basics you can do it because and not saying your eyes, no one's got the same eyes. So everyone sees things differently. Doesn't seem you're right, I'm wrong. It's everybody sees things differently. We can all tell a fit horse. We can all tell a good looking horse. We can all tell an unfat, a fat, a fat horse. We can all see that just by comparing it to ourselves. It's the same, same, same way you look at a human being, you look at a horse. But it's just those little things you need to, you need to, to, to be taught really. How 
when a horse is over overdone, when it's done too much. Because what you find, you go to all these big races and trainers say, I'll give it one more gallop. And that one gallop just puts it over the edge. It's just ha- seeing those things and seeing the horse previously just helps you, to, gives you a little bit of an edge. Okay, big feet in heavy ground, true or false? I would say I would say it's big. That's no, big. <laughs> I would say it's true because the thing is, you've got a small feet, a small hoof in, in, in heavy ground is not great. You need to, you've got to spread the load. So yeah, I, I would. That is definitely not a myth. I would say that's definitely true. This is the late great Ivor Perry taught me that back yeah. in the day. It was, uh, so talking about back in the day, do certain trainers would they still intentionally send their horses to the races looking dog rough, but not clipped properly, not tell the girl not to try too hard with its turnout? to try and put people like you away if they're going for a touch. Does that sort of thing happen or is it? It used to happen. It used to happen. Or what they don't do is take the, don't take the rug off at all. Literally, it's on the track and they rip the rug off so you don't get to see the horse at all. But I mean, the hardest person I found to, to judge a horse's condition was Willie Mullins. His horses could look terrible. I mean, unclipped, coat looks terrible, but they could perform. And once you got to know that, don't care how they look, you look how fit they are, you kind of, you kind of, once you know how trainers turn out certain horses, you kind of have an idea of what you're, you're dealing with. I know if a Willie Mullins horse looks terrible, you don't say, I want to I lay it or want to be against it because that's the way he turns his horses out. Where you see like a Gordon Elliott or you see a Paul Nichols, Nick, Paul Nichols always look well, in, they look generally look well in their coat, well muscled up. Nicky Henderson, slightly different. He always leaves more condition on his horses than other trainers. But he builds his horses up. So just kind of know how horses over the years um, produce their horses is important. OK, now in, in this segment, we have talked about other bookmakers. One I've got down on my list is Sean Graham. You've done a bit for him. Yeah, that was... See, when I worked for Victor, it was no no exchanges. When I worked for Neville, it just started to come in. And then working for Sean Graham, it was all about the exchanges. And people like me who would have who say, look, we'd like... So I'd come up and say to Sean, look, uh, this horse looks really well. The machine tells you no, it's not going to win. No matter how you think, if the, if the majority say it's not going to win, the majority and they're, and they're always right. It does happen, it goes in your way. But you, you kind of learn how you look to, you, people, the other things influence how, what prices are made now. And it's, it's, it's a lot harder where, like you know, they price up 24 hours before races. They didn't do that in, like say, in Victor or in Neville's day. They weren't, they weren't doing that. So it was a different dimension working for Sean Graham it was great fun and he was good to work for but you could see how it changed from how it started when I started to to to, um to working for Sean but again we laid some good bets we had a few good results but it was slightly different than what it was previously okay that's interesting so we know but that there's professional punters out there that that by and large racing is straight so you've seen one in the paddock looks a million dollars the exchanges it can't win yeah you, I'm assuming you take a lot of notice of that horse in the race, and yeah. that goes in your notebook for a very quick return. Oh yeah, you do. You t- you take you. I mean, a horse I saw the other day of of, um, of Godolphins should have won. It ran a really good race at Nottingham. It missed the break. It come to it bumped, but the thing is, everybody's seen it. Everybody's seen it on TV. Where, as you know, years ago it wasn't on TV. So it's if we were there, we would see it, so we could take advantage of it. So it's harder now to take advantage of those sort of horses because everybody can see it. Everyone knows what's going on, so it just makes things a bit harder. But yeah, you can you can still see horses that finished down the field or was running a good race in a novice hurdle that fell, and you can think, right, next time I want to be with that horse. So yeah, you can still see horses that need the run, 
has run above his Palace appearance, you thought, all right, next time he runs, I want to be with it. So there are little chances, but it's not as, not as big as it was years ago. Ken, you alluded a bit to my age there, you <laughs> rascal. So talking about that, do they... Is that, are, are the days of rubbing soap suds on a horse's on a horse to make it look sweaty gone? Yeah, those 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 days are those days are definitely. I mean, those 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 days were were, were a funny thing because I because I didn't know what it was at the time when I was a kid and I'm, I was thinking, oh, what's that? And he's like, they're trying to put you away. Just don't don't ignore that. So yeah, all those sort of things that your trainers used to do, um, you you kind of get through that now. And most times they turn up, they're fit, they're ready to go. Okay, I'm interested. You mentioned in I think part one that you you remates ended up being just you used to go to the races. So I mean, going to the races itself is a little bit daunting if you've never been. It's a shame it's a bit daunting, but I remember going for the first time. It's a bit daunting. So what initially interested you in horse racing? Well, funny enough, I was a pastry chef in London, and we used to work around the corner from Fleet Street. So all the journeys used to come into our shop. And they would talk about horse racing and it, it, it triggered that uh, I listened, but it didn't really, I wasn't really that interested in it. And then I went, I said, I went with my mates, went with myself. And then it just, I just, I just found it going to the races, watching people having bets, tic-tac, the whole thing, the whole day just, just grabbed me and it had something that appealed to me. Didn't know I'd be working it, didn't know I could even know anything about it. But those sort of things just triggered things into me. And then... Obviously, being left on my own, being a black person wasn't easy because I didn't know anybody. So it was, it was really hard, but I got to know people. And then when I used to go racing like Saturdays and Sat- Friday, Saturdays and during the week, you start meeting professional punters. So you start meeting people like Alan Potts, um, Dave Neverson, um, uh, uh, sorry, Dave Neverson, um, Eddie Fremantle, all those sort of people. And then you start to be around those sort of people and then you, can't, you, you pick things up from them. You kind of learn. I remember, I remember meeting a bloke called Afrani. He was a massive punter. He was, he was a massive punter. I mean, I remember when um, he won, it was at the Guineas and um, the stout horse won for Cheveley Park. And I think he had something like 60 or 70 grand on his horse. And he was such a big punter, but he did his own thing. And you can't, if you're around those sort of people, you kind of learn um, what you should and what you shouldn't be doing. So, because no one, everyone went racing in them days, there would be so many characters and so many people you would learn from. I mean, one of the first person that I actually met, but I didn't know him for long, was Dodger McCarthy. I met him and I got to know him very, for a very short space of time. But just talking to him and he would, he would explain things and, and kind of point you in the right direction. All those were just a learning curve to me. So I was like a, I was like a sponge absorbing, trying to suck it all in and trying to learn from these people. And lucky enough, some of it's rubbed off. And that, that is one thing that people that aren't as old as me will have, won't realise what it was like on the racecourses back in those days. Oh, definitely. The good old days really were the good old days for learning from old professionals. Um, but you, so you've got to move on a bit, though. So you're a pastry chef and then you're, got, you're on the weekend for 16 years. Yeah. So you've got you've become a journalist. You're just a budding writer, or how, you know. <laughs> that was just. I mean, that was. I was going racing, doing stuff for other people, and then Jerry said to me, one day, I think I think I might have been at Ascot. He said, "I'm going to retire next year," and I went, "All right." And he said, "I think you can do my job," and I thought, mm, "I'm not sure about that." And he said, "Look, I've, I'm sure you can do 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 your job," and I thought, "Well, I haven't seen many people who are black are actually doing be, being a journalist." So I thought, mm, "I'm not sure." 
But Fleur Cushman, who was who was his, the editor, said, look, Ken, you're the perfect person for the job. So I got the job. When I got the job, I got loads of stick saying that I don't know anything about horse racing. I shouldn't have got the job. It's only because I was a friend. And she said, no, he can do the job. She stuck by me. And it flourished and it just took off. I mean, I'll be able to... I mean, my first column I've written compared to now is it looks totally different. But it was a learning curve. And she helped me through it to to how she wanted it structured and how they wanted it. And I worked there for, for 16 years at the weekend. And it, it was great fun. It, it ended on a sour note because um, the actual editor who took over didn't have the nerve to even tell me he had sacked me. I had to go and find out. But then it was COVID time and lots of people were losing their life, much less their job. So I wasn't... It wasn't that... It didn't upset me. It just upset me the way they went about it. That's what upset me, really. But again... As I said, I'm lucky. That closed. I spoke. To, I was in. I was in the press room at Kempton. John Hunt asked me what happened to the weekend, and I told him. And then I ended up working for ATR. Matthew Taylor said, "Look, give, send us a couple of copies." He looked at it. He said, "Look, I think we can work with it." I write a blog for ATR. Comes out on a Tuesday, and it's better because now they can actually put the races to what I've written, and you can take my view or, or form your own view. So it's got more structure, and it looks better now that it's on ATR. Yeah, and I've read that. It's on the website and it tells you your opinions on the horses. So that's an extra addition to the, anybody's form book. Yeah, if they, if it, they, it helps. If they it, it's a help if you want it or not. But you can, you can watch the race and, and form your opinion that what I wrote was right or what I wrote was rubbish. So you can, you can form your own opinion by, by watching it yourself. Yeah, so I'm assuming you are a punter. Yeah. And what's your angle? I'm assuming it's paddock watching. Well, I think, I think, it's, I think, it's, I think as I keep saying, it's the whole thing. I mean... You work at William Hill Radio, you work with some great people. You work with Andrew Mount, who does stats. You work with Andy Holden and Sam Turner that are on time figures. You've got John Babb, you've got Craig Forsyth, you've got Ross Briley. Everyone has a different angle. So you're working with them and you, you find out what works for them and what works for you. For me, I do the form in the morning. I, have a, I, 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 I highlight horses, that um, trainers that are in the form, trainers that are out of form. I look at the... I look at, um, the form of each horse and I, I form an opinion and I highlight them on the page of the paper and then I go to the paddock and that's the last part of the jigsaw puzzle because the betting's already been formed as we know over, overnight markets or whatever you look at the paddock and then you can say right that favourite don't like the look of that I like the second favourite or the third favourite so you, you, you'd use, you try and use it to your best advantage and like I said you watch them go down you have a bet or you have a bet before but yeah I have a, I have a bet I, I like to have a bet now and again definitely so I'm assuming that you avoid an awful lot of losers by waiting until you see them in the paddock. I wish that was true. We, well, this game is all, you, you back more losers than you do. But yeah, you try, and, you try and be selective. I don't bet in every race. You try and pick out races where you think you've got, a, not, as I would say, an edge. For instance, maybe a two-year-old maiden, maybe I may have a betting, or a three-year-old, three-year-old handicap where I think, I think this horse is definitely um, better than his handicap mark. I think he's got more in progression to go forward than what he's shown. So those sort of things, your two-year-old, your, your races this time of the season or your group races, like Blackbeard last week, I thought was a great bet because he had proven his group one form. He shows very odd things before a race. He'll stamp, he'll, I, I was at the curl when he actually went down on all fours and won, but he's that sort of horse. But I thought the, the way he performs, he's a horse that's got more to offer and lucky enough he, he obliged on Saturday. Okay, do you use the betting exchanges? Yeah, I do. So do you come away from the paddock and go, lay, 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 that can't possibly win? I don't lay a, I don't lay a lot of horses. 
maybe I should do, but I, I don't lay a lot of horses. But I do, I do bet them, and I, I and friends that I, I go racing with do have a, a strong opinion of laying horses than I do. But yeah, you, if I say I don't like one and they don't like one, they'll lay it themselves. And I, I will lay a couple of horses, but I wouldn't say that that's my angle in. I wouldn't say that's my angle. Would you say, can you tell by the betting exchanges that there's other people doing what you're doing? And as soon as a horse walks in the paddock and you think, oh, bloody, that looks a bit ropey, there's a big drift. Yeah. Or, you, or vice versa. You do see that. You do, you do see that. I think you see that, especially at the smaller meetings, when there isn't, that liquidity isn't so big. So once, once you, we, all, we all stand there and there's about three or four of us who I know are doing the same thing. Look at a horse. We like the horse. It gets relayed back to whoever. And then you will see the price change dramatically if we all see the same thing. Or, or vice versa. The, the favourite walks in, he looks terrible. You think, right, we're against this. It's relayed back and it drifts. So yeah, you can, you, you do see a big, a big, um, a big movement in the market. A bigger meetings, it's a lot harder because obviously you're going to need a lot of money to move, move in those big, in those big race meetings. But again, it can work in your favour because you can get a price on a horse which, at a smaller track, would have been a lot shorter. Okay, now people are going to say what a stupid question this is, asking you. But on a scale of one to ten. How important is it to see a horse, or at least hear somebody like you saying how a horse looks before a punter bets? I mean, how important should it be to a punter? It depends on the person. As like I said, everyone does things differently. Some people bet through stats. Some people bet through times. Some people bet because they've got, they, they just go through form. Some people like to do the form and then look at the horse. and Because the thing is, not, it's not look at the horse you fancy, it's look at the, the rest of the field. How is the rest of the field compared to the horse you fancy? You may fancy your horse. Go and see it. It looks terrible. And then something else look, and the rest of the field look better. So it's not only your horse you're fancying. Look at the makeup of the whole field. Is it a strong maiden? Is it a strong novice hurdle? That's, that's, so that's what you're doing. You're taking the whole thing into, you're taking the whole field into, um, into, um, into view and, and look at those as, and, and analysing all of the runners where obviously if you're at home, you're kind of betting just on the horse you fancy. Okay, so would, um, say Andrew Mount, you mentioned him earlier, he's put everything's in this horse's favour and you, 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 he's convinced you and you're going to have a bet when yeah. you've, you've looked at it yourself. And then uh, how bad would it have to look in the paddock not to bet it? it? Again, it depends. To me, it depends on what it does. Like I said, it might look brilliant in the pre-parade ring, brilliant in the paddock, and then goes like a bat out of hell down to, down to the start. And then you're thinking, ooh, that's, that, that's blown its chances. So you just want all, like I said, let's say, all your ducks in a row. You want everything just to go smoothly. So yeah, it's. I think. I think the whole thing is depends on the person because, like I said, there is so many different ways that people approach betting nowadays. All right, Ken. When um, when I asked you for a little bit of background, can't find everything snooping on Google. <laughs> um, you mentioned you've you've got a connection or had a connection with Harry Finley. Yeah. yeah, we all know he's a bit of a punter. So how did that go? Oh, that was again. It was just being in the right place at the right time. Um, Harry was Harry had quite a few people around him, and he wanted someone who, who was who's his eyes and ears at the track, and he asked me to do that. And he was fancy a horse, and his mate was phoning me up. Glenn was phoning me up and say, "Look, we fancy this horse. If if it, if anything you don't like, let us know." And I would go to the track. They would fancy a horse. I would, I would, he would phone me about 10 minutes before the race. And I would say to Harry, look, I think this horse looks brilliant. I can't see nothing against it. And he would bet it accordingly. Or if I say it doesn't look great, Harry would say, look, I'm not going to have a bet. And 
again, what a character, what a person to work for. I mean, he was just, he, he was, he, the thing I like about Harry was his enthusiasm. He loved to bet. He loved to bet. And trying to tell him not to bet was the problem sometimes because he just wanted to have a bet. But he was always great to work for. I, I had great respect for him and we got on really well. I mean, funny enough, it was only um, this year that I saw him. I actually went to um, Shelbourne Dogs and someone said, Harry Finney's around the corner. And I hadn't seen him for about two or three years. And we, we, we had a really good chat and I've seen him since. But yeah, he was just a great person to actually know and to and as a punter, just, he was just one of those people that you just were affected by him. Now, you said to me that you wanted to talk about Martin Pipe. And I got a little bit worried <laughs> because uh, you didn't look like you were going to say anything positive about it. But I've, I've luckily you explained it. And it's not going to end us in the uh, libel court. So uh, tell us about Martin Pipe. Well, the thing about Martin Pipe was that when he used to go jump racing, like this is uh, uh, like well, we were young, uh, youngsters, you go in and you'd have a, a, a 10 runner field and you could pick up 10 horses, eight horses or seven horses that were not fit. We're not going to figure because you knew by the second loss that they're beaten. And then you'd see this horse walking and it would be as fit as a rake and a little small thing. You're thinking... Oh, surely that can't win, and it was bolt up. And you and at then I didn't understand what, it, what the reason was, but then you learn because they, because he had his horses so fit, and horses had to basically had to get fitter to compete with him. Everybody was moving, the goalpost was moved, so you'd go to a race, and then you would have a pipe horse that would be fit. Everyone's horses would be as not as fit as his, but fitter. So to try and find out what he didn't like. Or to be with was it getting harder and harder, and you, you find that he moved the goalposts in terms of horses fitness on on national hunt, and it was made people like me our jobs a lot harder. And now you get like you go to Willie Mullins, like I said, with Willie Mullins horses, they are fit, but their coats look terrible, and it's just trying to pick those those um little little um nuggets out. But Martin Pipe, when he started, he made he made people like our jobs really hard. But in the early days, when you when you clocked it and you suddenly realised that Martin Pipe was a bit of a you know a bit of a genius compared to the other trainers, I mean, how, how long did that little edge last? It didn't last long because I think everybody got clocked on as well eventually because we used to see him go out in front and they wouldn't stop and you kind of you kind of worked out right they are much fitter no matter which, which where they run they are much fitter than anybody else and you once you got that into your once you decided. Don't look at how the horse is because he had some horses that were small, little flat types, massive big types. But one thing they all had in common, they were fit and they were ready to go. And when you looked at some of the other trainers, they were, they were lagging behind and they weren't as fit as his. And once you clocked that and once you could just don't look at the horse's makeup, then you, you, were, you were on a gold mine for a couple of years until everybody clocked on. Did you, have you ever had the chance to uh, to thank him personally? <laughs> no, I, in fact, I have, I've seen him a few times, and yeah, we've had a, a few natters now and again. But yeah, he was just he was a man that definitely changed the goalpost. Okay, now a lot of people, until very recently, uh, would have known you predominantly for William Hill Radio, and you've been what two decades you've been with them. <laughs> yeah, I'm old. Yeah, I've been there for uh, twenty odd years. You and... started the age thing, Ken. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I, I was there, been there for twenty odd years. Started there and. It was, like I said, it was a great year learning curve of the people you worked with, but people only knew my voice. They didn't actually know know me, they knew who I was. But I used to go racing, they go, I recognise that voice, you're Ken Peterson. And you used to get good and bad comments, but that, that's the way the world is at the moment. So, yeah, it was, it was a great, it's a great learning curve. It's loads of people 
that have gone there and gone on to other things. So yeah, I'm just, I just I like working for it. It's a it's a great place to work, and the people that listen, you are surprised by people that listen. I've had tr- I've, I had a great incident at um at York this this year when I criticised. I don't like red hoods. I think I don't think every horse needs a red hood. So I made my my statement on radio. I don't like all these horses walking in red hood. Next race I walk out, William Haggis comes up to me, and he says. You don't like red hoods? And I said, no, William. I said, you can't tell me every horse in this race needs a red hood. And he said, no. But we had a, a discussion. He explained that putting them on was something that once you get them on, when do you take them off? So he kind of explained the reason behind it, which, which again, opened my eyes. But it's just so, you don't know who's listening. Well, I you, need to know what the reason is now. Well, he said, once you put them on, when do you take them off? Because if they work, if you take them off, will he go back to what he was doing previously? So he was explaining, it's hard to say I'm going to take it off because his job is to get the best out of a horse. And I said, I can, I can see that. I can see the point. But again, I don't think every horse walking around a paddock needs a red hood. I'm still not convinced by that, even though I, I respect what William said to me that day. OK, another thing you wanted to get like, get off your chest to talk about and discuss was all-weather racing. Well, it wasn't all-weather, it was all-weather surfaces, because that, again, that was the Martin Pipe thing. Because all these trainers have all-weather surfaces, now you can have a horse off over a 1,000 days and it'll come back and it'll be fit and ready to go. Where years ago, if it's off a 1,000 days, I would guarantee it wouldn't be fit. It just would not be fit, because they, could, they had not, didn't have that um, facility to get them fit. But now, because of the... The, the facilities they've got in all weathers, they're all the horses can be off for such a length, length, long length of time, and they're ready to go. And you've, that's we've got to take note now because sometimes you may see a horse for a thousand days and think, oh, it won't be fit, but they've got they, they're they're ready to go. And you again, you learn. As I said, as you said, you keep learning all the time. And talk about learning. I mean, the all weather tracks have changed their surfaces a few times now. So how much difference does the variety of uh, surfaces make when you're looking at a horse that can you sort of decide by looking at one whether it's going to go on a certain surface not really because like I said because they've got them in their training facilities it's it's not it's not it's not that easy to, to dis- decipher between a Wolverhampton a Kempton or a Newcastle it's totally different like with, when Summer's old track you could tell because you had to have a like I say a soft ground action even though that wasn't the case to get out of the surface so no it's not that easy now it, again it makes things just a little bit harder the soft grain actually being high high knees, knees. yeah and that the the grass cutter is the the, the, the low so that's which, right. which of the two is most suited to all weather is it in the middle i think it's in the middle i think it's in the middle because you can you can you can get away with both now um on on the surface they're that forgiving and and what you what i have learned is that you don't, you don't have to be 100 percent fit to win in those surfaces that's why trainers send their two-year-olds which are just undercooked to run in those surfaces because they haven't got to be 100% fit. That just puts the edge on them when they're next to pier. OK, there's a guy interviewed previously, Martin Raymond, well-connected in Newmarket. Quite often he'll tip one up. It's a short one, but it will go on to be a group horse and it's one of Kempton yeah. on a Wednesday. I mean, can you spot a class horse in amongst the rest of them when they're that young? Somebody that is going to be... That's going to go much better. If I took you, Simon, you could pick it out. You, you can. When you, <laughs> I, I, I think you. I tell you, you can. It's you put a Ferrari amongst 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 minis. You can pick it out because, like I said, you kind of you kind of get a hint from the breeding how the horse looks. Forget about the betting, how it looks. It walks into the paddock, and you can say 
you can see this is a, a very classy animal. I mean, it just stand, it stands out. I mean, everyone will say Franco was a, a magnificent looking horse, but he looked class from the moment he walked into the track. Those sort of horses, they, they, they're, they're few and far between, but they do stand out. You've got a, a 90 rated horse running in the 0 to 60. It will stand out because it's just a better horse. And are you often surprised how the market is a bit generous? Sometimes it is. Sometimes it can. Sometimes it goes the other way. Sometimes they've they've got them too short, and you're thinking, okay, it, it, it looks the the business, but hey, it's not 100% fit. Just doing things a bit wrong, so it, it it swings and roundabouts really. And as a paddock judge, do you sort of avoid the real bottom layer of all weather racing? Is it that much difficult to really find something in amongst a lot of poor horses? Yeah, I think I think the prob- the problem is. You're trying to look for something, you're trying for a bit of quality, something that's better than the rest. And when you're dealing with, the, say, the lower scale, there's not a lot, there's not a lot difference. Unless Sir Mark sends a, a one in there that's rated 48, which you know is going to be a 90 rated horse, because it does stand out. Okay, now finally, you've suddenly become quite famous. Because you're on ITV Racing. So everyone that watches ITV Racing now knows who you are, if they didn't before. Was that always an ambition, and how how did you get that gig? Again, like I said, Simon, I'm just lucky. I was just lucky. I remember it was it was the COVID year. I'd done three days at Chester, and I had to go to Lingfield for the Derby trial. And I'm not the greatest lover of Lingfield. I've got to admit. So get down to Lingfield. There's very few people about. It was raining, and then I was walk. I did the Derby trial, and I was walking out, and I heard Ollie Bell behind me saying, "Shall I speak to him?" Because their feed had gone down and they had nothing to do. They had nothing to interview. So comes up to me and he goes, Ken, I want to do an interview on this race. And I went, oh, God. I went, don't mess it up. Don't mess it up, I'm saying to myself. So I did it. I put up the loser scope. I put him up. He got beaten. And I didn't think anything of it. Went home, turned my phone off. I turned my phone on the next day and it literally blew up. I got messages from people from Ireland all over saying, great, we'll see you on TV. People want to know what you've done, what, where, who are you, whatever. And I didn't think anything of it. And again, like I said, I'm so lucky. I go to York for the, for the um, Danton meeting. The very first person I walk into is Ollie Bell. And he goes, Ken, did you see what happened on, um, uh, on the social media? And I said, no, but I've heard all about it. And he said, ITV have asked you, will you do um, free races for us? I said, yeah, OK, I'll do it. Did the free races. It went down well. And from then, it's just, it has literally has snowballed. I mean... People in the industry have come up to me and said, it's good because it's, it's just about the horse. It's not about anything else. You're telling people how the horse looks. Punters, some of them like it, some of them don't like it. Um, the general public just like something that's different. And it's, it's just been, to me, I've been overwhelmed by the actual, the, the, by the, the way people have reacted to it. Okay, so what's next, finally? Well, I think, I think, Pallet judging, I think, well, I think what I think the next thing for them is going to be, it's all going to be about data. I think all these massive data firms, they've got people to do their form, they've got people to who do um, times, and they, and they need they need someone who's on on the ground looking at the horses, telling feeding them back information. I think that's where I think the pallet judging will go next. I think it'll all be big firms getting data and getting how horses look and perform on the track live feeding back to him. I think that's where it will go regarding a pallet judging. Regarding myself, I'm happy with what I'm doing. I mean, yeah, I could like to, I'd like to do some more on TV if, if, it, if it comes about for ITV racing. Hills have been great. I mean, ATR's been great. So, I, really, Simon, I can't complain. I mean, 
not many people have a hobby that turns out to be their job. Brilliant. Well, on that note, Ken, 